Hello, friends. I want to thank you for your continued suggestions on the topics for my solo podcast episodes. Keep them coming. I like being told what to do. I hope that today's conversation with Per will give you some insight into the tough childhood that sparked the entrepreneurial spirit in me. Dr. Joe Dispenza writes that to become a master of our thoughts and emotions like the phoenix, we need to be able to sit in the discomfort of the fire. Sitting in the fire is both the process and the initiation. I know what it's like to start from nothing. My family and I are boat people, refugees who escaped Vietnam after the war, and when Saigon fell to communist rule in 1975, my father realised that he had no choice but to escape Vietnam. And the only way that he could do this was to build a boat and smuggle himself and his family out to sea. I was three years old, and my brother Lewis was two. My grandmother begged him not to leave. She couldn't understand how a parent would want to risk their children perishing out to sea. But my father is a very determined man. He stands at just five foot one, a little shorter than myself. But what he lacks in inches, he makes up for in courage and determination. And he had already made up his mind. He would rather die trying than risk imprisonment or a fate far worse, the re-education camps. It's not enough that they want to take our freedom, he would tell me. They want to take our thoughts as well. And he was also determined that if we died, we would all die together. And so in October 1977, armed with only a rudimentary map and a compass to guide him, he steered our tiny vessel out into the South China Sea. We spent our days drifting and waiting and praying. We prayed that a foreign ship might come to save us. We prayed that we might find friendly shores. We prayed that the pirates wouldn't attack and rape us. And we prayed that our supplies would not run out. But our prayers were not always answered. Ship after ship after ship ignored our SOS, the most basic distress code of the sea, and at gunpoint a group of Malaysian soldiers pushed us off supposed friendly shores. We ended up in Thailand where we spent a horrific year within the barbed wire confines of the Dindang refugee camp, and it was in these walls of this camp that my mother gave birth to my brother Luke. And in 1978, Australia finally accepted us. The Fraser government housed us at Westbridge Migrant Hostel, and my father quickly found a job working on the production line at the Sunbeam factory in Campsey. Sunbeam gave him the graveyard shift from 2pm and 2am, and they gave him all the jobs that nobody wanted. And like many entrepreneurs, I grew up in a tough environment, my family came into this new country with nothing. We had no house, no job, no money. We didn't know the laws, the language or the systems. Resources were scarce and the mounting pressure weighed heavily on my father with two young children, a newborn baby and a sick wife to provide for in a new country. He had no other choice but to succeed. Determined, he took on a second job and then a third and at home, he was always angry. He had this anger building in him that none of us could explain. He would throw things. He would smash things. He would yell at us. And sometimes he would just stand there and scream and scream and scream. And it wasn't long until he vented his anger at my mother and then on us kids as well. 
We now know that he suffered terribly from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, and he would often wake up sweating and screaming from his nightmares of the war. Little was known about PTSD in those years, and so neither he nor his war veteran friends knew about the kinds of tools and the support that could help them to cope with this illness. Well, he didn't know any better and soon passed on his anger to the next generation. And as you can imagine, my brothers and I grew up in an environment that was full of fear, violence and abuse, along with huge expectations. My father was determined to raise four high achievers. He wanted to make sure that the sacrifices he and my mother made were honoured. Determined to succeed, he quickly moved us to Bonnyrigg, close to the outer western suburb of Cabramatta in Sydney, New South Wales. And it was during this time that he was bitten by the entrepreneurial bug and he was bitten hard. He chose Cabramatta for its strong sense of community and he saw how many of his friends had created a life for themselves in such a short period of time. He understood that the secret to their success was an unconditional dedication often fueled by an underlying desperation. He found a prime location in the heart of Cabramatta's bustling commercial district. He held this location for over 10 years and on the first floor of the building, he operated a video library. Downstairs, he ran a restaurant as well as an ice cream parlor. We also had Cabramatta's very first cafe. He was Cabramatta's very first barista. And he also operated a driving school on the side. And my brothers and I provided the child labor. This is where my entrepreneurial journey began at the tender age of seven. And so every morning before school, my father drove us all to the restaurant. My brother's duty was to set up the tables and chairs inside and outside while I helped my parents set up the kitchen inside. And once everything was ready, we caught the train to school. After school, we caught the train back to the restaurant to help clean up after lunch service and set up for dinner service. And then we caught the bus home where every day I cooked and cleaned for my brothers and made them do their homework and their household chores. And this went on for years and years and years. And I practically raised my brothers on my own while my parents worked and worked and worked. And on top of all of this, we had to get good grades or else a brutal caning ensued. One thing was for certain, my father had created four tough working machines. He instilled into all of us a ferocious work ethic. I learned so much in those years, we all did. Mentally and physically, we were strong. Emotionally and spiritually, however, we were a mess. But the positive side to all of this was that I quickly became very self-sufficient. Many entrepreneurial skills began to develop the skills of discipline, responsibility, accountability, reliability, persistence, courage, resilience, and grit were some of my closest companions. And soon, the hustler spirit was born from these skills. Unbeknown to my parents, my brothers and I, <laughs> we started operating a handsome business from home, selling packets of instant noodles to the Australian kids right from our front door. Each packet of instant noodles contained a sachet of artificial flavoring packed full of monosodium glutamate, MSG flavor enhancer 621. There was salt and tiny flakes of fake dry herbs in the sachets. And the Aussie kids would crush the crunchy uncooked noodles and then sprinkle the fake flavoring on top. Then they would shake all the ingredients together and eat the content straight out of the packet. 
flavor bomb. <laughs> and they were addicted to MSG and demanded that we keep supplying the goods. In those days, the white kids were too scared to venture into Cabramatta or Vietnam matter as it was known at the time. So we acted as their go-between. <laughs> Each packet of instant noodles cost us about 25 cents and we sold it on for a dollar. And every day our school kids from year three to year six lined up at our front door in Bonnerig demanding their MSG fix. <laughs> The explosion of this new unfamiliar flavor excited them and we thought the Aussie kids were crazy for wanting to pay this amount of money but the demand was there as was the profit margin and so we thought why the hell not. In the later years my youngest brother Leroy who is now a fashion designer, editor and writer he'd also learned about supply and demand. He had two side hustles selling to his classmates in junior school. The first was selling the delicious fried peanuts that my father would make for him during for his recess. And the second was selling live fleas, <laughs> fleas that he would pick from our flea-infested dogs. He trapped the parasites in clear plastic containers and sold them to the curious kids at school who'd never before in their lives seen these tiny, lively creatures. The jumping vermin provided a great deal of entertainment in the schoolyard. And we all know that if our father ever, ever found out about our little ventures, we'd be in big trouble for sure. For sure, he would beat us hard and good. Fear loomed over us as usual, but we still found a way to run our rackets. Looking back, I cannot help but feel an incredible sense of pride about this. Despite our fear, we continued to take risks. That's what entrepreneurs do, right? We continued to be daring, we continued to work hard at the shop, continued to get good grades in school and continued to innovate with our side hustles and I had not yet turned 10 years old. Meanwhile, the violence and abuse at home escalated during my teenage years. At school, the boys were starting to pay attention to me. As an awkward teenager with low self-esteem, it took me a long time to understand why the anonymous love letters in my letterbox, the generous gift hampers and teddy bears left at my front door were inevitably discovered by my father. I had no choice. I had no control over these lovesick deliveries, nor did I have control over the beatings that ensued. My father liked to humiliate me by cutting my hair, cutting it off in chunks and lowering the hem of my school uniform to ankle length so that I could look as unattractive as possible to the boys. And by 17, I'd had enough. I became incredibly suicidal, severely depressed, and I knew there had to be a better way. Every night, alone in my room, I prayed to the, my God in the dark, dear God, there has to be a better way than this. This can't be my life. This can't be my life. And so I mustered all the courage a young teenage girl could muster, and I ran away from home. I spent many years hiding from my father, I'd look over my shoulder everywhere that I went, paranoid that familiar faces would follow me. You see, I wanted my fears forgotten, not faced up to. I put myself through university. I completed a Bachelor of Arts in Communications. And by the time I was 20, I was working two jobs just to stay alive. I struggled to stay on top of the rent, the bills, the expenses from being at university and supporting myself. But growing up in the family businesses helped me to get work quickly in some of the most prestigious restaurants in Sydney while I was at university. I scored positions working under the tutelage of famous chefs, restaurateurs and sommeliers. And 
Looking back, the ferocious work ethic that my father had instilled into me was quickly being noticed by these respected professionals And I was often awarded for being the hardest worker and achieving the highest sales results. And it was in the early 90s and while working in the best restaurants in Sydney, I came to know and observe many of the wealthy elite businessmen, politicians, socialites and celebrities who didn't think twice about spending big on their corporate and personal credit cards to support their excesses and elevate their status. And this was a new world to me. I had come from frugal beginnings. My life education came quickly. It came quickly with the help of my newfound friends. Sex, drugs, decadence, debauchery became my inner circle. Exposure to this fantasy world fueled me. I was earning good money and spending it fast. I was hanging with the cool crowd who craved status, gluttony and control. I was influenced by the influencers and I didn't want this high life to end. But with every extreme high, ends in a brutal come down and in my moments alone with these business icons and successful entrepreneurs when we were naked real and raw with each other they would share with me their sadness their helplessness frustration and longing and in these moments of honesty incongruence and confusion set in I had somehow wrongly made the assumption that if I acquired a fortune I'd be home free that all my problems would be solved and I'd be catapulted into a rarefield existence where I'd be permanently happy. I didn't see anything like happiness in the lives of these business icons and successful entrepreneurs, however. And so all my life, I had watched my parents struggle. I watched them leave the house every morning before sunrise and return late at night, exhausted with aching bodies and deflated spirits. I'd watched them bicker and argue until their blood boiled to the point of explosion. And I watched them live cheerless lives while they reaped little financial reward. My parents had every right to be unhappy, but not these rich guys. They had no right to be unhappy. How could this be? To be wealthy and unhappy didn't make sense. This is not what success is meant to look like. And I decided then and there that I wanted to find true success and true happiness. And so I went on a hunt to find it. The incongruence and confusion triggered me into a kind of life crisis and I was only 22 so I guess it came earlier for me than most. I have an acronym for myself. I call it FYI. Follow your irritation. And follow my irritation is exactly what I did. I left Australia and traveled the world. And in my search, I traveled across Europe and lived many years in Paris and London. I spent time in the US, Canada, the Caribbean, the Pacific Islands, Africa, Asia, and India. I studied, trained, and worked with some of the greatest spiritual teachers and entrepreneurs of our time. I met people in countries like China, Vietnam, and India who were very poor materially, but were spiritually very rich. And these experiences deepen my understanding that inner happiness and material wealth are not as intrinsically connected as I once thought. They are less like twin brothers who share the same bedroom, and more like distant cousins who live on separate continents. I wanted to find happiness for sure, but I also wanted to be wealthy. 
I did not want to experience the struggles that my parents and so many of their friends endured and my intuition told me that happiness and wealth were not actually a mutually exclusive proposition. My life experiences have proven to me that bringing them together is possible. Being deeply spiritual and happy and fulfilled and materially wealthy can go hand in hand. American writer Richard Bach put it perfectly when he said, you teach best what you most need to learn. And over the years I've learned that the only way that I can continue to grow is to teach. My growth and fulfillment comes from my contribution to others. And so today I am a teacher, a writer, I speak, I coach, I mentor. I believe that the life we live are the lessons that we teach. The life we live are the lessons that we teach. And as long as I continue to live, I will continue to teach. We are what we share. Ziegler's words also ring true. You will get all you want in life if you help enough people get what they want in life. Over the years, I've learned that money doesn't buy you happiness. Money buys you freedom. And freedom is what buys you happiness. Happiness comes when we have the resources to assist others. Life is designed to make sure that we express our unique talents and find fulfillment. What we are destined to do as human beings is to find our talents and through using our talents benefit all humans. Our service to the world and what we are willing to receive for it come together to make up who we are. At the heart of my work is my desire to push forward humanity by teaching what many people still find a mystery today. That it can be success and happiness, not success or happiness. I call this the way of the spiritual entrepreneur. And it is my mission to teach people how to master their hearts, their minds, their behaviors, their emotions, and their environment so that they can live their lives fully and deliberately and not by default. Mastering these areas is the key to entering the realm of the spiritual as well as material wealth and well-being. This, this is what I call true freedom. <laughs>